Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. As you know, the High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional, and it's sponsored by the Career Hub. The Career Hub is powered by Goslin Martin Associates, so if you haven't checked out the Career Hub, please do so. You can link to it off of our main website at goslin-associates.com. Today, we are pleased and honored to welcome Dr. Vince W. Patton III. Dr. Patton, or Vince, served as Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard from 1998 until his retirement from the Coast Guard in 2002. Vince served our country with more than 30 years of active service. Among his numerous military awards includes the Distinguished Service Medal, which is the nation's highest military peacetime recognition for performance of duty. As the Coast Guard's top senior enlisted leader, Master Chief Patton was the principal advisor to the Commandant of the Coast Guard, his directorates, and the Secretaries of Transportation and Defense, with a primary focus on quality of life issues, career development, work environment, and personnel matters. Vince routinely address, addressed these specific issues before appropriate Senate and House committees in Congress and the Commander-in-Chief, along with the senior enlisted counterparts of the other four armed services. Vince received his Doctor of Education degree from the American University. He received a Master's degree in Counseling Psychology at Loyola University in Chicago. He received a Bachelor of Science in Social Work from Shaw College and a BA in communication from Pacific College. After his retirement, Vince was an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, teaching philosophy of ethics. And he earned his Master of Theology in Applied Religious Studies and became an ordained minister. Currently, Vince is a leadership development coach for New Day USA Financial LLC, and he serves as chairman of the board of trustees for Northeast Maritime Institute. Vince serves on boards with the National Coast Guard Museum, with the United States Naval Sea Cadet Corps, and the Uniformed Services Benefit Association. Vince, welcome to the show. I am honored and excited to have you as our guest, and I, I thank you for coming on with me. Well, Peter, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to our conversation. Excellent. My my pleasure. So you may be wondering, okay, we have Dr. Patton on, we have Vince on, he served in the Coast Guard, he's got a distinguished career. What's it have to do with healthcare facilities management? Well, I saw Vince uh, give a keynote address back in September down in Newport, Rhode Island. The uh, New England Healthcare Engineering Society Fall Conference was in person this year. And Vince gave the keynote on the first day, and it was called core values, the root of success. And it was really uh, a dynamic presentation. I enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, core values. And Vince went into a great uh, explanation of them along with his history. And I thought that's really core values are really applicable to where we are. And I thought, let's have Vince on. And I thank him for coming on. My thanks also to CJ Brown. CJ is the president of the Rhode Island branch of NEHES. He's also the facility director at Women and Infants Hospital down in Providence. CJ was kind enough to make the connection, so um, I thank CJ for doing that. Before we get into the core values, though, Vince, I'd like to ask you a little bit 
about your Coast Guard experience. You were the eighth Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. You also have the distinction of being the first Black Master Chief Petty Officer. As the service's top senior enlisted leader, tell us please what the role of Master Chief Petty Officer entailed. What did you do? Well, you know, the position of Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, actually, the way to explain that is uh, each of the military services has one very senior ranking enlisted person, just like they have a senior ranking officer in each of the services. So uh, we start with the Army. They, You know, uh, the Army has the Sergeant Major of the Army, and the Marine Corps has the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. The Navy has the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. The Air Force has the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, and now we have our Space Force, which also has a Chief Master Sergeant of the Space Force. And then for the Coast Guard, we have the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. Now, the uh, distinction of our numbers, like I'm the eighth Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, is uh, this position was created back in 1969, and it was uh, uh uh, created by Congress, actually, uh, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, when the uh, Senate Armed Services Committees were having their hearing uh, uh, with the uh, service chiefs, uh, the question always came up about addressing issues and morale with the services. And uh, uh, Congress didn't feel that they were getting uh, uh, accurate answers in terms of really finding out what was going on with the troops. And uh, so therefore, they, they decided that, well, you know, what, what the services need is uh, sort of like a senior ranking rank and file kind of person who is hand selected. And you go through a, a congressional uh, confirmation hearing and everything, just like the service chief does. So uh, so you you serve at the pleasure of the service chief, which generally is four years or three years, depending on the service. So uh, that's how our numbers exist. So like I said, the position was created in 1969. So since 1969, I became the eighth Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. They're now up to 13 now. So every time <laughs> that a new number comes up, that makes me feel a lot older. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's a, it, but it's a very <laughs> unique position because in that, uh, yeah, your role is about uh, looking after the needs of not just the enlisted side of the house. I mean, that's how the position was created. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar with the military structure, you have officers and you have enlisted. And, uh, and uh, 80 plus percent of each of the services uh, workforce are enlisted personnel. So you're kind of like the general or the admiral of the enlisted people. That's really what, what you are. And so what that means is, is that in looking at issues like quality of life, looking at uh, training and development, uh, looking at uh, any m morale issues, as well as compensation issues, you address those things before Congress. Uh, in my four years in my tenure as Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, uh, I had to do a, uh, a, a hearing uh, testimonial before both the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee, as well as because the Coast Guard at that time was under the Department of Transportation, I also had to make a separate presentation before uh, the uh, House and the Senate uh, Transportation Committees. Uh, as you know, now the Coast Guard is under the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, but anyway, it's a pretty big job. And, you know, you travel uh, throughout the uh, the world uh, because uh, our, our Coast Guard, 
not familiar to a lot of people. When you think of the Coast Guard, you always think about just on the coast within the United States, but we have Coast Guard everywhere. We've got, uh, we today, we have uh, Coast Guard units in the Persian Gulf. We have uh, Coast Guard units in, in Europe. We have them in, uh, in Asia as well. So we're scattered all over the world. And it was my job during my tenure to get the, the, the pulse of finding out how things were going with people and to report back, not just to Congress, but also to my service chief, who was the commandant of the Coast Guard. Wow, there's a lot there. I wasn't even aware of it. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. So let me ask you a, a couple of questions just based on, on that, Vince. Um, you know, we have presidential elections every four years, and usually the new president comes in, and obviously they have an agenda that they want to get through, and it, it changes, you know, four years, eight years, whatever it happens to be. So as Master Chief Petty Officer, do you have to go through that same process? If, if every four years there's a new Master Chief Petty Officer, how often, and I guess specific to you, do you come in and follow on the agenda of the leader prior to you? Do you have a different agenda? Like, how does that process work? Because that would seem to me every four years is pretty quick turnaround. Do you have the like? Do you have the agenda coming in, and how do you go about accomplishing it uh, in a timely fashion? Well, you know. <laughs> That's a good question. And, you know, the answer to that question is almost like uh, being a wizard or a magician. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you, imagine. You, you know, because, yes, you do. Uh, you're actually selected based on what the criteria and agenda that your service chief has to follow. And, of course, your uh -huh. service chief is selected by the president. So, so, for, so, so indirectly or directly as you look at it, uh, you are addressed to what is the responsibilities of the administration for that particular service. Now that trickles down to the service chief, the, in, in this case, the commandant of the Coast Guard, when uh, he and soon to be a she eventually uh, is, is selected in that position, what the, what the presidential administration's focus within the realm of what the Coast Guard's responsibilities are, how hmm. that commandant is going to work that out. And then that gets translated to the Master Chief of the Coast Guard that says, okay, here's my marching orders from the president. Now, you've got to be the one to help carry this out by hmm. ensuring that the people within the service truly understands its missions and when you find there are hiccups as a result of that, that you're the one that has to quickly report that back as well as to come with some solutions uh, to what, how to work those particular problems. So, yeah, this is, like I said, this job is, it was, was pretty much like being a magician <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you, yeah. you know, you, you, you kind of had to work issues as they come and, and, uh, uh, I would say from my seven predecessors and even up to now, where, like I said, we're up at number 13, that there have always been challenges and obstacles, uh, mostly money. You know, at, at, in any government agency, money is always a, the issue at hand that you don't have enough funding to do certain kinds of things. And then when you look at quality of life matters, uh, better housing, uh, increase of compensation for a number of things and so forth, that's always been an issue to be able to address. Uh, now, how do you do that? Well, it's all about how you can articulate it when you get your moment in the sun. And that is, as you make 
make your presentation before the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee. I mean, these are the people that actually vote on the budgets and they're the yeah. ones that, that dictate what the budgets are. You're the one that articulates that to say why it's so important. You know, why do we need a pay raise? Why do we need extra money in order to take care of housing, Medicare uh, or whatever that particular situation is? So, uh, you you know, you kind of uh, it's it's always been a Hail Mary pass for me <laughs> when my time came is that uh, I was going to throw my pass and hope <laughs> that they they caught it. And mo in most cases in my four years, they did. You know, everything was within parameters of what budget considerations are and so forth. But uh, I, as well as my counterparts of the other services, we made some wonderful strides in order to make uh, some things very successful uh, during the courses of our tenure. So as an enlisted personnel yourself, um, you know, you have a, you have an idea of, of, you know, what, what's in front of the enlisted folks, the men and the women, but how do you go about, you know, 1998, you're now master chief petty officer. How do you go about trying to connect with the enlisted personnel and advocate for them as quickly as you can, knowing that, you know, the clock's ticking when you start in 98, how do you go about connecting with articulating and, and representing the enlisted personnel? Well, you know, it starts with two things. One is what your past experience has, and that meaning that uh, uh, you have had an opportunity to uh, to walk a mile in their shoes, so mm -hmm. to speak. And uh, and so you have to not just articulate that, but you got to show a sense of inspiration uh, mm -hmm. to the people who you are serving. Uh, because I never use a term that I'm in charge of mm -hmm. uh, several thousand. I, you know, that was not the case. I wasn't in charge of anybody. I mean, if, if, if anything, I worked for all of them. Hmm. And so I had to always make that as my premier discussion about I'm there for you. And as a result of being there for you, that I've done the things that you're doing now or you're being asked to do. I've stayed up late at night on watch. I've been underway on uh, out at sea with the uh, rough weather and so forth. I've worked on different types of equipment and uh, and, and resources uh, that we minimally had in order to make things happen. So uh, you have to articulate that to the people so they get your trust. And so this kind of brings a little bit about where you've asked me to be on this podcast was about core values. And mm -hmm. I've often found that, you know, that uh, the, the foundation to be able to, uh, at the very least, address your leadership is your core values. So I learned very early on in my career that core values were very important to me. Now, the phrase core values was, was not a in vogue word when I joined in 1972. And uh, quite frankly, I, if I if I, if my if my uh, history is correct, it wasn't until probably the mid to late '80s, uh, around the time of total quality management, uh, becoming uh, sort of the uh, the the focus of how to uh, be better at at focusing and functioning with business as well as personal aspects and so forth. That when core values kind of began to percolate. Uh, First off, uh, the government, uh, particularly the military, they they grasped that phrase core values rather quickly because the legacy of the military uh, going all the way back from its infancy days of the Revolutionary War, we've always had core values. We didn't call it that, but mm -hmm. we had it in many ways and so forth. And so when we, when we began to call it core values, 
it wasn't very hard to say, okay, what's our services core values? Well, we looked at our legacy, we looked at our history, and we knew what it was. So, uh, so I took like, for example, the Coast Guard's core values, which is honor, respect, and devotion to duty. And they all encompass different aspects in terms of what we want our service to do, how we have our service function and focus, and how the performance of our service gets its missions done uh, through people. So that said to me that, okay, uh, I've got my watchwords, honor, Hmm. respect, and devotion to duty. How do I get there? So how I got there was I looked upon my experience. I looked upon uh, things that I found that were very important to me. And, and this is something I grasped well before I became Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. And I came up with my own three words. And, and it wasn't that I was sitting down trying to come up with something <laughs> that was a catchy term that, you know, that was kind of like a, a Coke commercial or something like that. But it was something that I wanted to always remember that I could embrace honor, respect, and devotion to duty around. And so it came down to people, passion, and performance. And I looked at that because, and it, it worked out very well for me because when I was selected as Master Chief of the Coast Guard in 98, people, passion, and performance, wow, what better way to be able to not just embrace our Coast Guard core values and, and articulate that out to uh, the workforce, but more importantly, the assurance that I was on the right track and that as I addressed this, when I went out and talked to uh, the, the thousands of, of, of Coasties uh, 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 during my visits and so forth, but more importantly, to take that back and be able to uh, activate a plan. Okay, if the issue at hand here is is that we need more resources for people to do their job, particularly with, we need uh, uh, better equipped vessels. We need better equipped people and those kinds of things. That look at people, passion and performance. I was able to address that. I was able to clarify what that meant. And I, and that became, like I say, not just my watchwords, but it became something that even to this day, and I'm, I'm 19 years into retirement from the Coast Guard, People, passion, and performance are are just as strong today as they were when I kind of percolated that those phrases back in the very early nineties. It's you know that's that's interesting. After you are, I think I told you this. After your um, keynote, you know, I was just thinking about the concept of core values, and I think that's what a good keynote does. It makes you think after you leave, right? You know, you you still remember that the <laughs> keynote, and and I, it's funny you say you know that you didn't sit down. And um, you you didn't sit down and come with these. They just kind of percolated in you and, and it became for you. I, I sat down myself here in my office and I was like, you know, what would my core values be? And I started to think things through. And that's why I wanted to have you on, because I think that's a great exercise for all of us to go sure. through, especially these days, because it makes you think. Now, one of the things, and I do want to return to core values, but in in this podcast, you know, our audience is usually the healthcare facility management professional and all the consultants who work within. And one of the uh, items I like to talk to our guests about is career paths, because I find that we all have a very interesting career path. No matter what it is, it's unique to us. And it's very interesting. Your career path is among the most interesting to me. And and I, I would like, if you don't mind, if you could talk, Vince, a little bit about how you came to enlist in the Coast Guard, and you, <laughs> because that that was such an entertaining part of your keynote 
and it's it just shapes the rest of your life. So if you don't mind, w- would you mind kind of recounting that a sure. little bit? Because I thought that was to me, it was like, wow, very sure. interesting. Sure. Well, before I start, you know, my my daughter, uh, who probably is my biggest cheerleader, she said to me the other day. In fact, after I came back from Rhode Island from that conference, and she asked me how I went, and I told her how I went, and I said, you know, I I told them my life story. I told them about how I joined the Coast Guard, and she says, Dad, you know. I'm I'm glad you said that because uh, we ought to start looking for who's going to play you in, 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 a, in a TV miniseries or a movie because that's such an unbelievable story. But anyway, uh, so for me, it all started with, you know, uh, and, and, this, and this really ties a lot into the core values part is the fact that it all started with me uh, with about uh, uh, someone who I found to be uh, setting an example that was to be a mentor. And it was my brother, mm-hmm. my oldest brother, who is eight years older than I am. Uh, he, uh, when he finished high school, he joined the Navy and uh, he was, he, I always looked up to him. I, to this mm-hmm. day, I still look up to him, That's even great. as much older as we are. Yeah. So he, he's sending me home all these pictures and letters of things he was doing in the Navy. And, and I was just so enthralled and so interested in wanting to join the Navy. And, uh, you know, we grew up in inner city Detroit, Michigan, and uh, from a large family. So we really did see our path out to go do things on our own was to go in the military. And it was kind of a tough air at that time. Vietnam War was going on and so forth. So unless you got drafted into the military, very few people really said, I'm going to join the military. <laughs> so, uh, but it was something that my brother looked at because he looked at his going in the Navy as, uh, you know, this was the best opportunity that he saw that he would have to go to college, to get himself uh, into a path of uh, success that he wanted. And of course he did while he was in the Navy and he had a very successful Navy career and he retired as a captain. Mm. So I see my brother as he's progressing up the ladder in the Navy. And so that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to join the Navy. So on my 17th birthday, I, I'm a senior in high school and uh, the military has a program. They still have it today that uh, when if you're at least 17 years of age and you're a senior in high school, you can enlist in the military. And then after you finish high school, off you go. So uh, because all I talked about was joining the Navy, uh, my parents decided the perfect birthday present for me was to uh, sign for me to go into the Navy. So I was all excited about enlisting in the Navy as a senior in high school and can't wait to join. So the day after my birthday, because my birthday fell on a Sunday, that Monday after school, I headed down to the recruiting office in downtown Detroit and uh, the federal building where all the recruiters were. And uh, down at the this narrow hallway, I see uh, a guy in a Navy uniform. He's at his desk and he was on the telephone. I said, ah, Navy recruiter. And I make a beeline <laughs> down to that office. Uh, as soon as I walk into the office, he looks at me and he's, he cups his hand over the phone. He says, uh, He says, have a seat. I'll be right with you. So just as I get ready to sit down, I look at the pictures on the wall and, you know, Navy ships are gray. Well, (laughs) these pictures of ships I saw on the wall were white and they had the letters that spelled out Coast Guard. (laughs) 
Well, see, back then, and this was 1971, back then, the Coast Guard uniform was the same as the Navy uniform. Now, there was a big giant sign on the door that said Coast Guard recruiting. I paid no attention. I just happened to see this guy in a sailor uniform sitting yep. at a desk, and I figured that was it. And that's all I beelined on. So <laughs> I walked into the wrong recruiting office. And I was too embarrassed to turn around and walk out, especially yeah. after making eye contact with the recruiter. So I decided I'm going to pre- you know, pretend to be there, uh, you know, for a reason. And then uh, I'll go find the Navy recruiter afterwards. So while he's on the phone talking, I'm walking around looking at the pictures on the wall and, and I start seeing them a, a little intriguing and a, and a little exciting. And, and then I come across a, um, a, 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 what is called a unit citation, which is a write-up for an award that when an entire unit does something and this thing read like a novel. So mm-hmm. I so I got fixed into reading this thing. In fact, it was a, a rescue that the Coast Guard was involved in in 1952, which uh, to this day has been known as the, the greatest rescue the Coast Guard had ever done. It was a rescue that happened off the uh, coast of Cape Cod uh, where uh, a freighter uh, broke in two. <laughs> and the Coast Guard came out in, uh, in rough, rough, rough weather on a 36-foot motor lifeboat and rescued 28 people wow. off of that freighter in the bad weather. So this thing, like I said, it read like a novel. <laughs> right. So as I, and, and, uh, and in fact, Disney made a movie out of it. And the movie's called The Finest Hours. So huh. I, I read, so I read this thing. And then when I finished reading it, I said, wow. And so the recruiter stops his call, looks at me and says, I guarantee you'll have one of those in your first four years in the Coast Guard. Wow. That's how I ended up in the Coast Guard. <laughs> awesome. That's I mean, that's such a great story. <laughs> that, that's how I ended up in the Coast Guard. But then the story gets a little bit more exciting from there is, uh, you know, as I get into basic training uh, or boot camp, as we call it, uh, you know, several months later after I finished high school and off I go to Cape May, New Jersey, which is where the Coast Guard recruit training is. And two weeks into boot camp, uh, I come across a portrait, a portrait that, that, that was very intriguing to me because the portrait showed uh, what looked like to be a master chief because there's, there's a rank master chief, not master chief of the Coast Guard, but the rank master chief. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that rank on, on its chevrons, on its stripes, there's two stars above. Well, this guy had three stars, and I, that's what got my interest because, well, we learned that a Master Chief has two stars. This guy's got three. So I go to my book, which we call The Coast Guardsman's Men, and I look in there to try to find what uh, the uh, what this three-star thing is, and, and it wasn't in the book. And that, of course, is because the rank was very new then, and so this portrait was the only guy at the time, and our book wasn't updated. So I'm, so now I'm really, really confused and intrigued. So I asked my drill instructor, which, you know, two weeks into the, into, into the service and in in basic training, you, you seldom ask your drill instructor anything. <laughs> He's supposed to be quiet. But, uh, seaman recruit Patton decides, uh, uh, with all kinds of confidence and courage to ask his, his, uh, his drill instructor, uh, uh, there's a picture of what I think is a master chief, but he but I but he's got three stars, 
And so my drill instructor, you know, as drill instructors do, they get into your face to intimidate you and so forth. <laughs> and he's got his finger pointed right between my nose and he's got his mouth within, within maybe a couple of inches from me. And he yells, that's the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. <laughs> and so I, uh, you know, frightened, yes, because of the way he addressed it. But intrigued even more that uh, seaman recruit Patton had to ask the next question. Well, sir, <laughs> what does he do? And then the drill instructor gets back into my face and even a little more annoyed because I've now asked two questions. Right. And he says, he tells the commandant what to do. Well, I thought that was a pretty cool job. So fast forward several weeks while we were in, in, in basic training, and it was 10 weeks of basic training back then. So about a, week seven is when they finally tell you what schools you're qualified for, specialty you want to do, and so forth. So senior recruit Patton, as innocent as he wants to be, ask his career counselor, what school do I go to to become the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard? <laughs> and so my drill instructor thought I was being a smart ass. So uh, <laughs> back in the days, they could touch you. <laughs> he, he grabs me by the collar and yanks me out the door, makes me go to the middle of the parade field and do 50 push-ups, which I had no idea why he wanted me to do all of that. So <laughs> I, I did the 50 push-ups, snapped back to attention. He gets back into my face and he says, the day you become the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, that's the day I'll walk on clouds. <laughs> well, he was so right because he died two years before I became Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. <laughs> so he was walking on the clouds. <laughs> yes, wow. he was. So, 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 so to tell you this, especially as you address about, about career development and focusing on the future, here, here I was, you know, Two weeks into the Coast Guard, you know, this was the the, yeah. uh, the end of June of 1972, that I wanted to be Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, you know, and it was, you know, and I was serious and so yeah. serious about it that I became a student of understanding what exactly that position was. And, and you know, one thing my my drill instructor did say, right, he said he does tell the commandant what to do. Well, sort of, <laughs> but uh, but it but it but I found it not just to be a fascinating job, but a very important job, a job that that demanded all kinds of uh, of different types of skill sets and requirements to have out of it, as well as your sincerity and uh, and belief that you can make a difference in that particular job. So uh, that became sort of my my desired goal. Uh, throughout my Coast Guard career, and and by the grace of God, and uh, you know, it happened in 1998. Yeah. So oh, it's it's it, it's an amazing path which you followed, and and I want to ask you kind of a question about the reaction um, when you would tell people that your goal was to be the Master Chief Petty Officer. But before I ask you that question, this was a question as I was listening to you during the keynote. And you explained the story about how you ended up with the Coast Guard. What was the reaction? Because uh, we've all been 17. We've all had to go before our parents and either admit a screw up or something good. We've all been there and we all know what that's like as a 17 year old. What was the reaction of your parents and your brother when you told them, I joined the Coast Guard rather than the Navy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, on the, on the trip home, I, I, I was already excited and I figured that from my huh. 
parents' perspective, particularly my father's perspective, since this is all I talked about, the fact that I'm changing service, it shouldn't be a big deal. Well, I, I came home and, you know, first thing was my, my father said, hey, I called the Navy recruiter looking for you and no one <laughs> and I heard you heard of you or, or you came in and what happened? And I've got this brochure, these brochures of the Coast Guard. And I said, well, Dad, I decided to join the Coast Guard. Wow. And I thought he'd be just as excited about it. <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't. And and this was a big surprise to me because, you know, what's the difference between whether I go into the Navy, the Army or any other service? What's the difference? So but what he was uh, concerned about was, uh, I mean, he, he found that the Coast Guard was a very uh, respectful, uh, 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 high elite organization and so forth. And he was proud of that in terms of my interest in that. But his concern was. You know, and we think about this in the uh, in the 60s and 70s uh, era time frame is that his concern was that uh, I was going into a branch of service that there were very, very few minorities and not hmm. just that, but concern that I would be stationed in locations where there would be very few to no minorities. And and he started rattling off uh uh, cities and towns across the United States that uh, had very little to no minorities. He says, you know, you could be stationed in one of these places. And so you may want to rethink this whole idea about mm -hmm. you wanting to go into the Coast Guard. He said, yeah, I think the Coast Guard's a great service, but, you know, you're going to find yourself in uh, Tillamook Bay, Oregon, and you're going to be the only black uh, within miles of there. And mm -hmm. you think you can handle that. And uh, so while he's steady telling me that, well, you know what? Maybe I don't want to go into the Coast Guard. My mother says, wait a minute. Don't talk to him like that. We should be encouraging him. We should hmm. be telling him what we can do to support him on this, not tell him he can't do something out of fear hmm. of, that, of, of, of the color of his skin. And so it was my mother that actually uh, became the, the, the person that changed that whole concept. And then she looked at me and she says, you know, things will never change unless you become part of the change. Wow. And, and that's what sort of did it for me. And then, of course, uh, uh, the, the next day I, I was able to talk to my brother and, and I told him about me going in the Coast Guard. And, and he was very excited. And he said then, he says, you know, I learned about the Coast Guard after I went in the Navy. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was doing so much <laughs> well in the Navy, I would have joined the Coast Guard too. <laughs> so a little validation for yeah, you, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, let's uh, just to follow up then, Vince, relative to your dad's perspective, your mom's perspective, in retrospect, how did it work out relative to your dad's concerns? And, and did you... You know, did you experience either racism um, or, or what did you experience as you grew through the ranks? The answer to that is yes, I did. And I, and I and uh, both in terms of within within the service, as well as externally uh, to the service. And, and it is kind of what my dad said, I, you know, I, uh, I, I found myself being stationed my, uh, my first assignment after recruit training. Uh, I found myself being stationed in uh, Petaluma, California, which is uh, about 60 miles north of San Francisco. And uh, it's it's out in the wine country. Actually, it's not even near water. And you kind of say, what's the Coast Guard doing out there? But but it's uh, one of the schools that you can go to that they don't need water to, to train you. you know? <laughs> so, so I was going to communication school out there and it was 
and uh, and it just so happens it's, it's out in an, in an area land that uh, uh, there were no other African Americans that were in that area. Uh, there were, uh, you know, uh, Latino uh, that lived in there. Most of them were farm workers and so forth. Hmm. But uh, but it was sort of far and few and in between. And so uh, when I went out there, uh, I had uh, an unfortunate experience of not with on the unit itself, but when I went off in the town and uh, and I had experienced some some issues at that point. But but. The good news out of this story, and this is another long story that I don't, I, I, I won't get into. the The good news of the story is the fact that uh, when that happened, when I experienced difficulty because of uh, the color of my skin, it was my fellow Coast Guardsmen hmm. that came to my aid that supported me, and that gave me such a good feeling that yep. uh, you know that at that point in time that you know. When you are in an organization, particularly because we all learn that it was important to work together and get to know one another and so forth and rely hmm. on each other because of, of, of a, a possible, uh, you know, saving someone's life as well as your own and so forth, that you counted on your your shipmates, your buddies uh, uh, on to, to your left, to your right and front and back and so forth. And that played out very well while I was out there in Petaluma that uh when things went down, you know, in a negative fashion, be, you know, people calling me names and so forth, it was my friends, hmm. uh, my, you know, and I, and I was the only African-American uh, in, in the class at my school. There were several other African-Americans that were on the base, but, but I was the only one in, in uh, communication school at that time. Uh, those guys all rallied around me. And, and, and then I, and then I had an equal situation that when I went to my first assignment, when I went to a, to a ship, which was based out of New York city and we would do, uh, 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 North Atlantic patrols. And sometimes we would pull into places like, um, uh, St. John's Newfoundland or, or parts of Maine and so forth for refueling stops or whatever the case may be. Uh, again, I would experience, uh, uh, situations because of being in an area that that, that was uh, somewhat of a strain because you were one of extremely few or one, only hmm. the only the one, but it was my shipmates that always were there for me, and uh, hmm. and that meant an awful lot to me. That that also revalidated for me because you know when I joined the Coast Guard, I joined with the intent of making a career. And, and, you know, and I had some ups and downs within this service in my first couple of years, but, it, but the revalidation of I'm sticking this out had a yeah. lot more to do with the people who I worked with. One of your core values, right? People. One of the Absolutely. People, exactly. passion, performance. And, and, and that's where people started materializing within mm. my personal core values. Mm -hmm. Wow. Let me just ask you um, one last thing kind of about the Coast Guard. I grew up down in Rhode Island. We lived in Narragansett, an area you're probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. For those who aren't familiar with Narragansett, it's on the coast. There's a Coast Guard station at Point Judith. And when mm -hmm. I was a kid, I would always go down to the breachway there down in Galilee. And I'd watch those Coast Guard boats. They, they had the 18-foot Boston Whaler. They had the 36-footer. And so mm -hmm. I'd sit there on that breachway and they'd kind of go slowly as they moved away from the fishing village. But then as they headed out to sea, they'd open it up. Those boats would plane right off the water and they would just cut through those waves. And I would sit there watching them go out as they headed into the open ocean. And I would think, how cool, how cool is that? My dad took me down to the Coast Guard Academy in New London. I never did apply, never went into the Coast Guard, obviously, but I was always in awe of it because I was always in awe of the ocean. 
which is just so powerful. Do Absolutely. you have a singular Coast Guard experience that that stands out to you in your career prior to becoming the Master Chief Petty Officer? It, it, maybe it's difficult to narrow it down to one, but was there a singular experience for you that you think of as you think of your your service? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. And it, and and as you ask the question uh, directly in front of me, staring is a is a poster that I have framed because it's something that I will always remember over the course of my career. In the early nineties, uh, uh, between nineteen ninety three to nineteen ninety six, uh, the Coast Guard was involved in a. Uh, uh, a, a huge operation, which was uh, uh, there was a mass exodus of of, of Haitians and Cubans hmm. uh, trying to come to America. Uh, the operation became Operation Support Democracy, and uh, what happened in Haiti was uh, uh, Haiti had just had an election, uh, installed a, a president, and the president was uh, was then deposed by uh, these gang of hoodlums and so forth, and. And uh, and so the UN uh, got involved, and they and it created a UN peacekeeping force uh, to be able to get uh, the president back into power in Haiti. And but in the meantime, while all this was happening, uh, we we had thousands of, of Haitians uh, that were uh, uh, taking to the waters uh, in just about anything that floated. And I do mean anything. You know, there were course boats, but we found. Haitians uh, on on floating doors. We found them. Wow. Uh, you know, we found them in just about everything. Uh, 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 malnutrition. Many of them were actually near death or were dying at the time. We were picking them up, and uh, and of course, unfortunately, we had to bring them back to Haiti. Mm. That, that that was the way how the law was. And then at then at the same time, Castro uh, as. I don't know if it was a joke to America or whatever it was. He decides while this is going on that uh, he's letting all the prisoners out of prisons in, in Cuba and, and even, even gives them boats to go to America. Huh. And so the Coast Guard now is stuck with, uh, with, with, with doing this uh, alien migration interdiction operation, which was, which was huge. And again, it involved with uh, this humanitarian effort where uh, we saw uh, people who, you know, and I saw people who were, who were like I said, dying near death uh, from all different kinds of things. And this poster that I have in front of me uh, is a picture of, of a Coast Guardsman holding a little baby. The baby is wow. probably maybe three months old, uh, holding the baby in his hand as he's fishing the baby out of the water. Wow. Uh, because of the fact that there were so many Haitians on this boat that uh, when we came, got close to them, uh, they all moved to one side and the boat capsized. And so meanwhile, there, wow. there were you know, people all thrown out, uh, not wearing life jackets, by the way. And so mm. just about everybody on, on our Coast Guard cutter, uh, you know, did everything they could, you know, jumping in the water and so forth to rescue, throwing out life jackets. We were doing all kinds of stuff. And so uh, uh, we had a uh, Times uh, uh, photographer, news reporter that was on board because he was capturing the story about Operation Support Democracy. And he snapped this picture of this Coast Guardsman uh, scooping this baby out of the water. And uh, I have this poster of it because it ended up being on the front cover of Time Magazine in 1994, I think wow. it was or something. And so I have this picture. Uh, 
And uh, it, because it, it's it, it's probably one of the biggest things that I will always remember because uh, not just the rescues that we did, but the the despair of people and look and the look on their face uh, as they were uh, trying to uh, escape poverty, persecution, uh, you know, all of the things of what they wanted to have and looking to come to America. And uh, and it was a very tough job because see, yeah. our job was we had to take them back. And, uh, and, 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 it, and it became a very tough job because we were all emotionally attached with the whole idea behind it, uh, the rescuing of them and, you know, seeing, like I said, seeing, we saw hundreds of people dying in front of us. It, it was just, it was just a real horrible, horrible experience and so forth. And I will never forget it. And, uh, you know, if you ever Google uh, Operation Support Democracy or Operation Able Manor, uh, which was the Coast Guard's uh, uh, operation to operation to support democracy, and just look at the pictures, and you can yeah. see many of those pictures of what what's happened. And, and as I understand, even in today's uh, news, uh, uh, a little bit of that is happening again. The Coast Guard is again right. out there now uh, uh, interdicting uh, 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 m- migrants who are trying to come to America. How do you? Um, question I really didn't think you know I would ask, but how do you? I mean. You're in the military and you have your duty and you're, you know, that's what you do. But how do you not escape that? But like when you go back to your coders, how do you deal with the personal element? And you alluded to it a little bit there, but how, how do you, how do you deal with that personal part of it? I mean, you have your job to do when you do it, but you're also a human. You're also a person. How does that balance work when you're in the midst of it? Well, Peter, let me go back to when our initial conversation that we talked about, not just in terms of what core values are all about, but also an understanding our condition of employment, you know, that being Hmm. how organizational core values is sort of set that. So that was kind of one of the biggest parts of my job as a senior enlisted command master chief, which I was at that time, and as well as master chief petty officer of the Coast Guard, was was I, I, I had to really get the folks to understand about what our mission is all about. You got to articulate mm. mission. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, there's some inherent understandings when you come into the military, what your mission is. And of course, you know, mm. the inherent mission, of course, is, is uh, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I mean, we, we, we take an oath to exactly say that. But what exactly does that mean? How And how do we carry that out? This is why it's important that uh, uh, the position that I had as Master Chief of the Coast Guard, as well as when I was a Command Master Chief, uh, and, and even in supervisory roles and responsibilities, that it was very important that I had to sit down with my crew each and every time to explain what we were doing and why. Now, it was very simple when it came to search and rescue cases. Somebody fell in the water, you Mm. go get them, okay? But then when you had law enforcement responsibilities, either from uh, migration interdiction or uh, drug enforcement or uh, or even other things such as oil pollution spills or or uh, or maintaining of aids to navigation, our buoy work, and all those other kinds of things, the ex- explanation of mission uh, becomes much more comprehensive beyond just the visual side. Is that hey, there's a buoy that uh, that broke loose from a station, go get it. Well, 
the other part of the story is that buoy is there for a reason. And if we don't have that buoy on station, here's what can happen. Hmm. Uh, ships will run aground, uh, you know, or, or they will fall or they will run into each other. Or, you know, you, you make those explanations a lot more into why you're here, why our service exists, and what we are there to do. And some of it's a little easy to do. Some of it's a little very difficult to do, such as, as I discussed this uh, humanitarian mission that we had. But it was to get people to understand why. And the fact is, is that there are some things that we have no control over. We don't have control over what the law is. The law mm-hmm. says that uh, uh, we see a, 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 an alien migrant out, our job is they have to. We have to take them back to their country. Mm-hmm. Uh, our reason for stopping them is not as much as that we are enforcing the alien migration laws, as much as the fact is that there's a safety measure because we are. You know, these are people that just as many as we have picked up and took back to their country, we have seen as many floating in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because they tried to come and, and their boats capsized or whatever whatever contraption that they invented that they think they can make the trip from, from Cuba, from Haiti to Florida, you know, didn't work. You know, I, I, I'll never forget that there was a, 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 a unfortunately, it, there were several, several uh, bodies on it, but the, uh, a contraption that these people had made out of uh, out of milk bottles, out of gallon milk bottles, and putting them all together, and then they made a raft of it. And unfortunately, wow. uh, you know, uh, surprisingly, the the, the the contraption stayed afloat, but they died of of uh, of, of heat exhaustion, of of uh, uh, you know, of just being out and uh, you know, being out, not enough water, you know, all these other, the different kinds of things. So. When we it, when we see the whole understanding of our mission and what we had to do, that would bring that in line so so folks understood what our job was. So it's tough, but that's how we explained what we had to do. And as I look at other services, you know, particularly with uh, the Ar- the Army and uh, the Marine Corps, their combat missions of sorts, and how they had to deal with different kinds of things in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's the same thing in terms of what exactly our mission, why are we doing what we have to do? What is our end result? And you have to articulate that as best possible uh, to our force in order to understand why they're there and what they have to do. Mm. How did you, you know, you talk about articulating mission as a leader being so critically important. How did you evolve, you know, throughout the course of your career relative to being able to deliver and articulate articulate the mission was that a was that a journey for you as well yeah it was a, it was definitely a journey for me because you know you know after boot camp after i realized well to become master chief paid after the coast guard it's, it's not about what school you pick to go to it's about uh, <laughs> what are you going to do over the course of your career so you start reaching out and and this is where the importance of mentoring you know, mm. and, and there are and there's different levels of mentoring that I look at. There's the direct level mentoring of 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 people you physically come in contact with to talk to to help you and and work you through. And then there's the indirect mentoring. Mentoring as a result of people who have inspired you for who mm. they are and what they have done and how they can become helpful. And 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 I look at my 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 uh, external mentors as as people like uh, the famous. Brazilian soccer player Pele. Never met the man in my life. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
But in 1979, I read a Life magazine article on him. It was sort of just how great Pele was as a soccer player. And there was a quote in there that I picked up on and I carried it with me as it began to develop my core values. Pele, the question was asked to Pele about uh, what made him so successful and what kind of things did he do to become successful? And his answer was, success is no accident. It is hard work, perseverance, studying, learning, sacrifice, but most of all, love of what you're doing or <laughs> learning to do. So when I, when I, you know, so that became, that became sort of my mantra when I saw that and I said, all right, especially that part about hard work and learning what to do. And uh, that's what I was going to get involved with the hard work, learning what to do and love of what I was doing. So mm -hmm. that was my, my indirect person. And then there's another part of that where I have sort of an inspirational indirect person. And, and, uh, as we, uh, just before we came on this podcast, uh, it was just, uh, announced of the passing of, of one of our greatest Americans, mm -hmm. General Colin Powell. Uh, I, I happen to have had the opportunity to have met and personally, uh, uh, knew General Powell. And of course, it was much later in life that I got to, to know him personally. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, my first uh, meeting of him was when he was chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. And during that time, Operation Support Democracy was going on. Mm -hmm. And he came down to the area down in uh, down in the, uh, the Florida Straits to Haiti and, and Getmo and so forth. And I got to meet him. But, you know, this is a guy that was more than larger than life. You know, I'm, I, I, I would say that every eulogy is going to use that phrase large in the life. But hmm. here is a guy that, uh, that in my looking up to him was not as much as looking up to him from the standpoint of what color of skin that he has that was like mine, but more importantly was his way of how he defined what success was all about, how he defined what experience was all about. And I couldn't help but just be just so, so enamored with the with, with just the the inspiration of what this man was all about. And if anything, I could say more about him is the fact that he more than validated and solidified my core values of people, passion, hmm. and performance by virtue of what kind of person that he was and what he had done. And then, you know, and then later on after I became master chief of the Coast Guard and, and, you know, he and I went to church together. So that's how I got to know him hmm. personally, uh, that, you know, there was just so much more about this man beyond what you read about him. And, and, and so, uh, capturing, uh, a, a legacy of inspiration is something that will always be with you and will always be something that you carry that on to someone else as well. So, uh, you know, Colin Powell, Pele are, are two examples of, of where I think are the driving forces that have been very helpful and successful for me. Wow. Yeah, it was, I, I thank you for that. I thank you for that. And rest in peace, General Paul. I was surprised when you told me that prior to the podcast, I, ha I hadn't heard that. And certainly a loss for our country and, and for the world. And, and inelegantly, um, I'll admit to this, a very inelegant transition here. But when you were talking about Pele, when you were talking about General Powell, Alex Haley popped into my mind. Because yes. you talked about Alex Haley during your keynote. 
Yes. That was another that. Tell if you don't mind, can you just recount that? Sure. We're supposed to be talking core values, but well, the no. Alex Haley popped into my mind, and I was like, you know what? That's that's another but interesting yeah. anecdote. But these are all, but you know, but but Peter, these all tie into core values. Yeah. Everybody who I've uh, either uh, physically crossed paths with or or been inspirationally crossed paths with all tie into the bigger picture of the core values. So the mm-hmm. Alex Haley story, which uh, uh, just just slightly to my left as I'm sitting at my at my desk here is a, is a big autographed picture of Alex Haley and someone who. I got to know very early in my career, uh, very, very early in my career. I was, I was on recruiting duty, and this was in 1976. I was on recruiting duty in Chicago, and I happened to be at an event uh, where, you know, recruiters come and, and you know, to, to give out recruiting literature and so forth. And, um, and there was all kinds of different things going on there. They had a car show. There, there were uh, uh, music programs going on and so forth. And this guy walks up to my recruiting booth uh, table, and uh, he sticks out his hand, and and he says, "Alex Haley, Chief Petty Officer, U.S. Coast Guard, retired." <laughs> now I had no idea who this guy was. I remember, this is 1976, yeah. and uh, uh, but I found him to be a very interesting man. So I reached my hand back out, and I said, <laughs> "Petty Officer Vince Patton, still in." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, we got a chuckle out of that. And uh, so he told me he was in the Coast Guard and how he enjoyed his life in the Coast Guard. And, you know, we chatted for a good few minutes. He was just excited to see somebody in the Coast Guard here. He, then he wanders off. And uh, and, uh, and about an hour later, he shows back up and he says, hey, have you walked around and looked at all of the exhibits here? He said, they got a great card show over there. They got this and this and this going on. I said, well, I'm the only one here at my table, so I, I can't really go anywhere. He said, oh, go ahead. He says, tell you what, hey, I'm retired Coast Guard. I could I could tell people about the Coast Guard, you know, go ahead. And then he gives me two dollars. He says, Go buy you a hot dog or something. You know, you know just you know, go out and enjoy for a little bit. You know, take your time. And you know, so I kind of figured, well, okay, the guy's harmless. And then he pulls out his ID card to show me he's retired. Coast Guard. <laughs> wow. So that, that I wasn't dealing with the net case or something. <laughs> so, uh, so I wander off and then uh and then I suddenly I come to this in my wandering off, I come to a table that has all these books stacked up. <laughs> and this big sign. And this big sign says, Coming soon to ABC TV, a miniseries about the American family. And the big words Roots hmm. by Alex Haley. Nah. And I said, Alex Haley, that name sounds familiar. And then all of a sudden, I walk over to the table. I pick up the books, look at the back of the book. There's pictures on it. I said, holy cow, that guy's over at my table. <laughs> <laughs> so I make a beeline back over to the table. And, uh, you know, and I says, you know, are you the Alex Haley that's written his books? And he says, oh, uh-huh. yeah, of course. And, and, uh-huh. uh, and then we get back into another conversation about, you know, how his writing is what got him started and, and while he was in the Coast Guard and, you know, and so forth. And so anyway, we became friends, extreme buds. You know, we were, you know, of course, this is in the days before uh, Internet and email. So we were actually yeah. doing the snail mail mailings. And I still have a lot of his letters. And uh, and I told him about I want to be Master Chief of the Coast Guard. Now, the position didn't exist when he was in the Coast Guard because he retired in 1959. 
things. But uh-huh. I had explained what Master Chief of the Coast Guard was, and because I think he actually did a little research on his own to find out exactly more about it, and then you know, finally he just really just got all excited about it, and he's and he and he became one of my my strong supporting mentors of helping me to achieve my goal. And you know, sadly uh-huh. he uh, he died before. I became Master Chief of the Coast Guard. He died in 1992, but uh, but in in 1989, and as I'm talking about this autograph picture that uh, uh, that sits across my room here, in 1989 I was promoted from Chief Petty Officer to Senior Chief Petty Officer, which is which is just uh, two ranks below mm. Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard. So I I called Alex. And I didn't get him on the phone, so I left a message on his on his answering machine that I, I yeah guess what I I'm making senior chief and uh, wow. anyway uh, so uh, maybe about two three weeks later in the mail comes this autographed picture and it's addressed to me and it says to senior chief Vince Patton good luck in the pursuit of your ultimate goal to become the master chief petty officer of the Coast Guard. Wow. And, and uh, like I said, this picture is uh, is it's kind of like a shrine <laughs> in <Yeah>. my house. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but but you know, so this is just one of those guys that uh, again, just as 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 General Powell, that Alex Haley was another guy that was just as large in life. And you know, I think if anything, I learned a lot about him as as, I, as in this interview, as I tell you. Uh, stories and I explain things in the story. I think I got a lot of that from from Alex because every discussion I ever had with him was always in the frame of a story, and I was always so locked into how he told it that I, I have to believe that as I'm talking in this interview that uh, I've picked up a lot of of Alex's yeah. habits. I. I, I I loved that story when you told it initially. I I loved hearing it now. You know, and as you talked, um, one of the things that came to my mind, and I think it probably ties to your core value of of people, um, which ironically keeps coming back to people, right? Um, but it seems like you know General Powell, Alex Haley, even you, because this came across during your keynote as a leader. There's there's a personalness to you. There's an approachableness. There's there's, you know, we all have egos, but it's not an ego that that says you're off limits to people. How do you, you know, as you think about that particular trait of leadership, how important is that to be approachable, personal, to be human? It's everything, you know. Being human is everything, you know. The, you know, I, I think in uh, in the early days of the explanation of leadership as a whole, uh, the, you know, uh, inspiration is part of leadership, mm. and I, and I think uh, the word inspiration somehow gets buried a lot with leaders. And again, I'm giving early definitions of what people looked at what leadership is. Is that uh, is that rather than using the inspiring people that leaders of people who know things and, and, and are quick to respond on their feed and all these other kinds of things. So there was always this misnomer about that, <laughs> uh, that the leader is the know-all, see-all, do-all, rather than the leader really is the person that you can approach, that you can also have a leader that doesn't have the answers, but will share with you on trying to find the answers. Mm. That's what makes the true leader is not as much as how much you know, 
but how much are you willing to help others to learn along with you? That it is a shared product, that it is, you know, it is about uh, the team effort of leadership, you know, that everybody can have a spot and being a leader. But to do that, it's about being approachable. And being approachable is about being inspiring to be approachable. Yeah. You know, I was, was, um, my my daughter, um, one of my daughters, she's a junior in high school. And I was just thinking when you were talking about being approachable and all, her volleyball coach sent an email out. And at the bottom of it, there's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. It just triggered. And it was, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's really what you're talking about there. Absolutely. Way, right? <laughs> absolutely. That's, yeah. Couldn't have said it better, but, uh, but Teddy Roosevelt's quote is absolutely on point. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, Vince Patton, who I'm, I'm speaking with right now, Vince, do you have mass first eighth master chief petty officer of the coast guard distinguished career? Can I, do you have time for a couple more questions? I, I, I sure. don't want to keep you too long. Um, but I know, well, I don't want to keep you too long. I say an hour in, but there's just a couple other <laughs> things I'd like to get to. Um, first thing, it's a chaotic world today. Um, you know that. And, and I'm just talking about business in the business world. Um, do you believe that or do you do you think that um, organizations who have core values, how do you adhere to your core values today as an organization when things change almost on a daily basis? How difficult is it to adhere to the core values and how would you suggest for an organization that's maybe struggling to adhere to core values, how do you go about adhering to those core values? Can you do it? And how do you do it as an well, organization? Well, you know, Peter, I would say that probably one of the biggest errors in, in corporate America today is about not taking the time to articulate the organization's core values to its employees and to encourage its employees to uh, expand upon their personal core values and how it relates to the organization. So my, my point here is, is that, you know, you got you to gotta see it, feel it, believe it. And what I mean by that is the point is if you're going to work for a company, First and foremost, how do you fit in that company? It's not as much as you're going to go work for a company because uh, you like what the salary is and that's all you care about. Mm -hmm. But it's about the mission of what that company's responsibilities are. And what is your contribution? Where does your opportunity of innovation to help to be successful in this company and how you can be part of the success of the company? I say that that, the, that, that companies are in error that don't take that time to sit down with this employees. And this isn't something that you just do it when you hire that person and, and, mm. you know, and, and, uh, and give them the, uh, the Kool-Aid and drink it. And that's the end <laughs> of it. This is something that is constantly done all the time. CEOs, supervisors, all these different people, uh, they should always be uh, getting spot checks in terms of checking on with their employees of what they're doing, how they're doing it, how they're focusing. And you know what? The other part this is, how many CEOs out there know their employees well enough to look at John or Jane Smith and say, you know, Jane, you know, I know one of your key core values is people. You know, Hmm. how many CEOs out there can do that, can say that? And that, you know, so that's what really helps 
to make things work very proactively in order to have a very successful environment. It is about core values. I mean, I, you know, I, I say it till uh, I, I, like a broken record uh, uh, that it is funny when I said, say it like a broken record. We're technology now is no one knows what a broken record is. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it just caught me when I said that. Yeah. Says, wow, you know what? You know, here we are in the 21st century. If I yeah. were to say this to some millennial and say broken yeah. record, they look at me like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> but, you know, but that, but the, but the, Core values, core values, core values, core values. That's what it's all about. That's how we define our success. That's the bedrock of success. Individually, professionally, uh, and organizationally, all that is what we have to strive for. And I think, again, this is this is Vince Patton's uh, uh, opinion. It is that uh, uh, our 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 top level leaders uh, in our companies and organizations are not taking the time or enough time to continue to articulate core values. Not as much about their own core values, but what about your employees? How yeah. much are you doing to promote their core values to be able to tie into the success of our organization? You know, and what's interesting, and you know this, you know, a little bit from the research you did prior to the NIHI's, um conference, but in healthcare facilities management, it, and I'm just speaking particularly to what we do on a daily basis relative to the employment market, we're finding or we're seeing that um, there's a lot more, especially coming out of COVID now, um, there's a lot more movement. And I think that employees are less loyal to organizations because they perceive organizations are less loyal to them mm -hmm. and they see that manifested in layoffs on a Friday afternoon, just cost cutting. So it's really, you know, your core value message is so important because I think that many industries are finding themselves starting to, to split in ways because that loyalty that tied everything together for quite some time, it's not there as much anymore. That's right. Howdy. Yeah, no, please go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, how do you, and, and I think it goes back to what you said, that it's not a one-off, but how do you, as an organization, try to bridge that gap? Or how do you use core values to help help bridge that gap, perceived or otherwise? Uh, I look at it as, uh, it's just like, um, uh, probably the biggest marketing campaign should ever be, just like how, 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 Nike's swish is on swoosh or whatever you want to call it is, <laughs> is on every yeah. doggone shirt that you that you put on. Uh, how when you turn on the television and and uh, flow from progressive the uh, the gecko from Geico, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we, you know all those all, you know when you see those particular things, you know what they are all about. Well, you know that's the same thing with core values within the company itself. The company's core values got to slap you in the face every day. More importantly, yeah. not just in terms of slapping you in the face every day, but to encourage the employees to say, okay, if my company says honor, respect, and devotion to duty are the are very important to make that happen, how do me, Vince Patton, tie into that? What am I mm -hmm. doing today? At the end of the day, when I log off, at the end of the day, did my people, passion, and performance have an impact 
to honor, mm. respect, and devotion duty. In other words, that the, the key part to this is is that first and foremost, like I said, companies gotta 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 learn to better market, just like Geico, <laughs> Progressive, you know, <laughs> Nike, yeah. you know, they gotta better market that. They've got you know, and, and it's a bit beyond marketing what their company's products or mm. or in the healthcare industry focus as we look at in terms of the what the healthcare responsibilities are and so forth. You've got to market yourself better than that. You've got to put it so that particularly in the healthcare world, that uh, the users of that healthcare, uh, the patients, uh, the, the providers, those particular people, when I'm talking to or dealing with a healthcare uh, institution of some sort, that I want to be on the other end of the phone or the other end of my fingers on the, on the email and so forth, that I'm talking to someone that I have confidence and understanding in. Again, the best way I can describe that is that I want to be able to reach out to them in the same way how when I see the Geico Gecko and Flow hmm. on, uh, Progressive, <laughs> I want to be able to see those things and I know who they are. Yeah, that's a great tie-in to something. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I sat and watched a lot of football yesterday. I watched the Patriots, unfortunately, lose to the Cowboys. Um, <laughs> but those, those, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not go there because my Detroit Lions have yet to. <laughs> oh, oh. So I went to college out at Marquette, and a lot of my buddies are Midwestern people, and so we're on a group chat. Uh-huh. Um, and I have a couple of my friends are Lions. Lions fans, and the last couple of weeks we've been chatting. Yeah, I, you know what? I want the Lions to win because I like my friends who are from Detroit and root for the Lions. At least yesterday, Vince, there was no, well, there was no uh, drama. They just got blown out <laughs> yeah, early. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I was, I was, you know, you know, because I can't get the games complete because of being here in the Washington D.C. area. I got to watch uh, NFL Red Zone, you know, to see those pieces on there. Yes, but my yeah. my my heart just sank every time I saw yeah. a score. <laughs> oh man, I, you know, he was telling me, sorry, that there's a bet, two guys bet. Who's going to go to a Super Bowl first, the Lions or the Dolphins? And they made this bet in 2001 or whatever. And he said, neither one's going this year either. <laughs> so I hope your Lions win at some point. It's I give you credit for hanging with them. <laughs> well, if you're a true fan, you'll hang with them through thick and thin. <laughs> absolutely. You enjoy the good and the bad. Exactly. Um, exactly. Relative to um, relative to to your personal core values, Vince, can you give an example, you know, whether, whether it was before or during your tenure as master chief petty officer, is, is there an example of how your personal core values came into play with your leadership or, or with your role in the Coast Guard that stands out to you? Well, I think, that, you know, they kind of fell in place. You know, like I said, I go back to the story of when I read uh, uh, that, that, that uh, uh, Life magazine article on Pele was mm-hmm. probably the first real time that it started sort of ingraining within me. And, it, and you know, again, the, the term core values wasn't uh, a real phrase, at least a household phrase at that time. But, uh, but, but Pele's uh, uh, quote certainly was something that just carried with me. And then it began to morph even more because then I had to sort of redefine and re-explain in Pele's quote about, okay, what does hard work mean? What does loving what you do mean? And so, mm. so they started blossoming out and they, and that's when it 
all started materializing in this people, passion, and performance side. And you know, and and you know, I didn't explain as much about passion as I have mentioned about mm. how people and performance are. But the passion part of this, the passion part of this is 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 from Pele's quote about about love of what you're doing. Well, how do you do that? And it's about enthusiasm. It, it is about, uh, you know, how do you make yourself as you deal with your day-to-day operation with whatever you do, that at the end of the day, you saw or you have defined or you have helped to work positive results. And so that's where my passion part comes in. So it, it you know, if I had to put pick a, pick a time frame. Again, I'll go back to 1979, and but then over the course of that time, up to when I actually started calling it people, passion, and performance, it was uh, it, it was probably uh, about in the early 90s when I went to Haiti uh, during hmm. Operation Support Democracies when when it actually became people, passion, and performance, and and I think it kind of spilled out. What happened was, uh, uh, you know, as I told you, all the gruesome things that. Uh, uh, we had to experience during that that uh, terrible operation and so forth. That I I found myself on one of the Coast Guard cutters that uh, they had just they they just had a real horrible horrible uh, situation where uh, uh, two uh, vessels had overturned, a uh, total of uh, almost three hundred Haitians went into wow. the water half of them died. And so, you know, so you, you rescued half and then you spent the other part of that day, uh, fishing out, you know, the, the, the other ones, you know, and, uh, you know, which also included, you know, women, children, uh, you know, elderly Hmm. and all these other kinds of things. So, so I, I, I went to the ship and, uh, because I had gotten a message a little earlier and, and, you know, they said, you know, I was the command master chief of that at that time. And, um, and I got a message and says, Master, if we got to get you over here because uh, the crew is just really just just worn out. It's just worn out. And uh, they healed me over to the ship. And uh, and I remember, you know, I, I no one really looked up right away when I had to start talking to them because the first thing they, you know, hmm. all they needed to hear from was, okay, it comes it comes one of our bureaucracy guys coming. Oh, you guys <laughs> are doing okay, you know, pat you in the head hmm. and go out and do things. But uh, I I came there with. Uh, you know, with this strong, strong sense of passion, because like I said, I felt it, you know, just, just yeah. days earlier, I was on one of the ships when, you know, you know, which, which led to that picture that I have where the, with the fishing of the, of the little baby out and, and, <laughs> you know, in tears that, that came from me and from all of us when all these things were happening. So I, you know, the, the most important thing was to show them, that I was one of them, that I had experienced uh, that same type of hurt, that same type of just emotional feeling that came about me and so forth. And as I was explaining it, and as I was fishing for words, that I, I said something to the effect that, look, folks, we have a job to do. And if anything else, it's, it's going to take all of you people to have the passion of the heart to be able to do your job and do your job very well because you have prepared well to perform well. And I said that, and then somebody afterwards, you know, because after they, they kind of looked up at me and, and they says, okay, we get it, Master Chief. Now we know what we're talking about. So some, right after, somebody walked up to me, handed me a piece of paper and says, Master Chief, this is exactly what we need. 
<laughs> your people, passion, and performance <laughs> is what it takes to help us drive. And then when I saw wow. that, I said, oh, wow. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Well, it's true. Let me, uh, this is the last question, I promise. But you, when you lose passion, when a person loses passion, when an employee loses passion, is it time to seek a new opportunity or is it time to reflect and think, why am I losing passion? Or what happens when you lose passion? And let's say you're a healthcare facilities management professional, you're a director, you're a manager, you lose the passion. What do you do? You got to get it back because, you know, it's not a question of you lose your passion, you go on elsewhere. No, you've got you've to take a step back. Examine why you lost your passion. And if, if that loss in passion uh, involves taking a different path, career path or whatever it is to be able mm-hmm. to do that, that's the, you know, that's the approach. But you're never going to find your passion again until you take the true opportunity of time to examine why you lost your passion. Because if you don't do that, you know, you're never going to fix the problem. And, that, yeah. and that's, the, that's the most important thing. And I, and I, and I always like to look at it this way. I, I, I tend to believe that no one really loses their passion. Their passion sometimes gets buried into insignificant (laughs) obstacles and challenges. The passion Mm. is always there. What has to happen is just kind of like a, you know, let's use the football analogy of, of, uh, of, of when, uh, when the front lineman, uh, 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 goes down on the guy with the, with the ball and everybody else wants to pile on top of that. Eventually people are going to get up, you know, yeah. you know, people yeah. are going to get up to go, to, to go make another play. And so you've got to look at that when those obstacles and challenges are all on top of you, uh, they're going to get up, but you've got to help mm-hmm. them get up. You got to tell them to get up. You got to push them to get up. You got to get up. And so that's what helps you to move it forward. Because I, like I said, I, I just don't accept, the comment or, or the conversation of you lose passion. What, hmm. what, what happens is you can't see passion because huh. of the challenges and obstacles that get in the way. And, but there's always a way to be able to get to see things and uh, you just have to work at it. That's it. Awesome. Well, Dr. Vincent W. Patton, the third master chief petty officer of the coast guard from 1998 until his retirement in 2002, 30 years of service to our country. Thank you so much for appearing on the High Reliability Podcast. I really loved, uh, I love talking to you and I I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Well, Peter, thank you so, so much. I, I greatly enjoy the opportunity to do this and, uh, and especially to your listeners out there that uh, I hope my message helps bring home to help and focus on what their desires of successes are. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Everybody, thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode of High Reliability. Have a great day.